0: Welcome to Important, Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy,
1: and this is episode twenty. Episode twenty with Fred Utzi, and we're talking
0: about how the hell we're going to feed ten billion presidents, Brian. There will be there, <laughs> there will be ten billion people soon, and yes, this is the Andrew Jackson of podcast episodes. <laughs>
1: Jesus, that is a horrific. He was. What a do you want? He was a monster.
0: I'm just. That's the first thing that came to my mind when I thought twenty.
1: Okay, but he was a mo- I don't want that. This is the, I don't want to be is- associated with that. He's a monster. This is
0: the years of your life when you just get drunk all the time wait, of it, podcast wait, episodes. Isn't he
1: getting kicked off for Harriet Tubman, though? Yes,
0: he is, which is fucking awesome. So let's
1: back this up. This is the Harriet <laughs> Tubman <laughs> of podcast Fuck episodes. Yeah it is. That is That's way what I'm talking about. Fred Utzi is the president of the Land Institute in Kansas where they're focused on the incredibly modest goal of working to displace the predominant industrial disruptive system of agriculture by providing staple foods without destroying or compromising the cultural and ecological systems
0: upon which we depend. I mean, we literally talk to some real shitbags on this show.
1: People are just like, hey man, get off the couch and do something with your life.
0: Unbelievable what these guys are doing. Yeah.
1: Fred's just like, hey wheat, fuck
0: you. Fuck you, wheat. Right?
1: Yeah. We did
0: something I'm so excited for everybody to to listen to this episode. We did something that we've never done on the podcast before. Yeah, I'm Unclear not going to if it. It. it's
1: allowed, but it'll be fine.
0: <laughs> it'll be fine. Yeah, it was really really great conversation.
1: Um speaking of great conversations and uh thing other things we can segue into cuz I f- feel like we're kind of killing that these days is, <laughs> on the subject of food is yesterday at lunch I said what's your number one meal? Your go-to oh, right, right. end of end of life uh or um,
0: deserted, deserted island. island. Well, I asked you number you one You answer. asked me first,
1: and I said, without hesitation, so, so fast as a, as a almost 10 years pescatarian now, right? Who eats just basically colorful vegetables. Um, Thanksgiving sandwich, no question. <laughs> Hands down with so much
0: cranberry. That's what I was really surprised. Well, about.
1: Uh, cranberries, it's, it's, it's the, it's not the main focus, right? But it is, it, it, it accentuates. The flavor. But so,
0: you in great detail described the sandwich, and there were at least three layers of cranberry. Yeah,
1: no, my, my homies at home will appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, this is like a religion to us. Sounds um, awesome. It's, you know, you, you got to have great bread, but not the, the bread isn't the focus, but it's got to be good. Like, don't it's a vehicle for that. It can't fucking fall apart. No, ugh. I mean, this because this thing has some heft to it, right? And then oh. you've got your first layer is this uh, dressing. I told you it's called house dressing. Oh, yeah, right. It's amazing. And then you've got some cranberry. You've got some thick cut turkey. Ugh. Uh you've got uh some melted cheese that is good because it, the whole sandwich is going to go on the broiler for about 30 seconds. Is this a specific type
0: of cheese by the way? You know, I you a cheese prep? I have
1: cheese once every 365 days, right. so to me it's like a little bit of whatever's what am, there. Yeah, Otherwise yeah.
0: bad things happen. Got it.
1: Um so yeah, the thick cut turkey, then you're going to put a little more cranberry and then <sighs> a chunk of of uh stuffing. stuffing? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure little more cranberry, mm-hmm, some more of course. that house dressing, and then you're going to close the sandwich on top. Or if you don't close it right away, you put it, again, on the broiler pan. Don't close the oven all the way. You'll cook this. You'll roast your fucking sandwich. Oh, yeah, yeah, Too yeah. fast. The broiler is not to be messed with.
0: But I like some, like, extra toasty...
1: No, you will, but I'm telling you, you close that door, A, you're going to walk away and fucking forget about it. You can't fuck
0: it. with the broiler, man.
1: Right? So you leave the door cracked open a little bit, you, and you leave <laughs> it open-faced so that, the, so that the top piece gets... Toasted. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you cl- you take it out and you close it. Then like you need like 30 seconds. Oh, and then that's it. I'd eat fantastic. that every day for the rest of my life. Except for, yeah, one well, day a year. You'd be dead, yeah. All of, basically, all of the things on that sandwich I eat one day a year. Yeah. And I pay for it. You know what, man? You li- you only live once.
0: That's a special... That My answer is the same. It's literally a thing that I have once a year. And yours is... Mine's an Italian beef sandwich with a side right. of a hot dog. And as, <laughs> as... As discussed,
1: as much as mine, like, won't make me feel well. Right, right, right. Yours is gonna
0: fucking kill me. T- I mean, I I'm, say it <laughs> say it out loud one more time. What's your go-to? What is it? It's an Italian beef sandwich with a side with, of a hot dog. With a side yeah. of a hot dog. You can't and I don't think I have ever had an Italian beef sandwich without a hot dog after. <laughs> they go together they go together. Tell tell everybody what an Italian beef sandwich is. An Italian beef sandwich uh is uh, I would say like the aside from pizza I guess like the the food of of Chicago. No
1: but tell them tell yeah. us what it
0: is. Um, it's very thinly sliced uh-huh. uh, roast beef, uh-huh. uh, and you know it's it's cooked in a big vat of of, of au jus with spices and shit. I don't know what's in there. Uh, so you go you go to the place. Trans fats. That's what's <laughs> in there. But keep going. <laughs> you go to the place. You put a big pile of that on, uh, on, a, on, on bread. Very specific bread. I forgot the name of it, but the bread is important in this, in this situation. Uh, you, you, uh, you then dunk, you got to dunk that shit in the, in the au jus. I like mine soaking Wait, is it wet. just meat on bread? Is there anything else? Yeah, yeah, but this is, I'm going through the steps. This is in chronological order. You take the bread, you apply the meat, you dunk. Wait, are the, you building this yourself? No, no, no. Some, a professional sandwich maker is doing this for me. <laughs> uh, then after it's soaking wet, they apply green bell peppers, jardiniere, mozzarella cheese and you're finished they wrap that up and then you have a, a Chicago style hot dog is the cheese cold or warm it's room temperature and then it gets warm on the hot sandwich mm-hmm. I prefer mozzarella you really don't have to use cheese on this sandwich but it's a, it's a nice touch at
1: this point why yeah, not yeah why not right exactly right and then how are you eating this thing is oh there a God. special way do you have like a side of juice next to your side of
0: hot dog you, you don't need the side of juice because you have completely submerged your sandwich it is I'm not kidding you it just falls down your throat There's enough, it's it's in your mouth for enough time for you to taste it, but it just slides. Can I tell you what?
1: I have a real issue with a soggy sandwich.
0: Just like my brother who's
1: listening to this, friend of the pod. Yeah. You know what he does? Here's what he does. And now my son
0: is starting, it's awful. Oh, no. Pours the cereal, pours his milk, walks away so that it gets soggy, and then eats it. That's disgusting. It's horrible. Listen, I'm saying something specific about this. I would never, I don't want any other sandwiches soaking wet. You need this one to be soaking wet. I promise. Okay. God, it's such a good meal.
1: <laughs> All right. On that note, let's, let's go. I, I, uh, I got to think about this. Let's go talk should, to Fred. We should talk to
0: Fred. I'm going to eat some
1: vegetables. <laughs> Our guest today is Fred Jutze, and together we're going to try to answer the question, how the hell are we going to
0: feed 10 billion people? Fred, welcome.
2: Thanks. It's good to be on.
0: Very good to have you here. Uh, so, Fred, tell us real quick who you are and what you do.
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, Homo sapiens uh, located in in the middle of Kansas uh, in uh, North America here uh, at the the Land Institute. Uh, We're a nonprofit organization uh, here that has been working for about 42 years now uh, uh, with the sort of modest goal of completely transforming agriculture and writing uh, almost everything that's wrong with human habitation on the planet. So um kind of kind of typical typical nonprofit stuff here sure. um you know i uh, am uh, from a, a farm background a family farm background in illinois originally and uh, Illinois in and, here fred uh, yeah well that's very good very good prairie state uh and somehow i wound up in kansas uh and i'm uh, making the best of it here by leading uh, what i think is uh, the most important organization in the world at least in terms of uh ensuring that uh, that humanity uh, is going to be able to uh, to move on uh, as many more generations as my family has been on the on the land in Illinois and and uh, be able to do that all over the world. So,
1: well, it sounds like your daily to do list
0: is a <laughs> little more daunting than either of ours. Just a little bit. Oh, that's so great. That's so great. Well,
2: we overlap on podcasts, right? So perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect.
0: So, uh, all right, so let's set up our conversation uh, uh, for today. Our goal here on the podcast is, uh, you know, action-oriented questions. So we're going to establish some uh, context uh, for our wonderful listeners. And then together, uh, if, if you don't hate us, uh, <laughs> develop some specific steps that we can uh, all take to actually make a difference on this planet.
2: Perfect.
1: Rock and roll. Uh, so Fred, uh, we kick things off, uh, usually with one important question, uh, to really get to the heart of, uh, what you're doing here, um, both on the line with us and on, uh, this, this planet. Uh, so instead of saying, tell us your life story, um, and you hinted at this a little bit, we'd like to ask, why are you vital to the survival of the species, Fred?
2: Right. Well, I, I I don't know that I'm vital, but I can tell you why uh, the Land Institute uh, is is vital here. Don't be bad. Uh, and the movement that we have behind us. Well, I mean, I I find that my uh, my radiance shines through even when I contradict it. So, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but uh, but you know, essentially, we are um, trying to get to the heart of the matter uh, on why. Uh, agriculture, like all, almost all human land management, is screwing everything up so badly you know through no fault of the intentions and the integrity of farmers uh, or of consumers, uh, but just uh, as this uh, this kind of consequence that we can 't keep pushed down uh, we 're the people who are going all the way back uh, to the start of the story. Uh, to figure out where things got off track. And I would say that it is our willingness to do that, uh, to to take on, kind of answer that impossible question uh, and develop uh, the impossibly bold uh, solutions to that, that that comes from that that makes us probably number one, uh, certainly uh, when we started up the most ill-advised organization in the world, uh, but now the most important organization in the world. So, Yeah, that'll do. not not a terrible answer
0: i'm
1: a big fan of starting ill-advised organizations yeah um i feel like i've got a lot of those in my history
0: you seem pretty vital
1: you fred not me
0: (laughs) oh yeah sorry to be clear i was talking to fred
1: (laughs) all right so what we're going to do now is establish some context for our question of the day which is a big one so fred listeners this is your friendly reminder that this context one-on-one with uh, Professor Brian, not an official title, hasn't earned it. Uh, is uh, <laughs> pretty oversimplified, sometimes off course, and um, sometimes, though never intentionally incorrect. But that's why we've got Fred, Mister Vital, uh, on the line to correct us. So, Brian, Professor Brian, talk to us about uh, agriculture.
0: I've earned the title, okay? Okay uh okay give us the it. entire history
1: and uh, <laughs>
0: importance of agriculture go this is this, i can't fit this in my brain every week it's well, a lot the people need it let's go <sighs> all right um so uh what is wheat right and why is it important <laughs> the,
1: the paleo folk folks already hate you
0: yes <laughs> yes they do they did before this yeah uh so anyway we've been eating grains and stuff for like i don't know a hundred thousand years and um then i'm pretty sure we started actually cultivating it uh, you know, like rye, wheat, peas, lentils, flax. Flax is amazing. You love flax. Yeah. Uh, we started cultivating that about ten thousand years ago across the planet, and then sheep and cows and pigs and sugar and cocoa and cotton. How how do we how do we make such a jump? Well, living uh, living near rivers helped, and then and then shit got crazy in the Middle Ages. <laughs> You're getting specific, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing my best here. So uh, China opened up. Um, explorers uh, loaded up uh, on foods and slaves badly. Uh. Uh, Columbus, uh, who we all love, uh, brought a bunch of <laughs> New World stuff asshat. back to Europe. Yeah, he's the worst. Um, and then, you know, so many new innovations. Uh, crop rotation, advanced fertilizers, fish traps, uh, better irrigation, using animals for farming, you know, and not just eating. Okay. Uh, and, then, and then we went from primarily uh, subsistence farming, you know, feeding your ungrateful children, mm-hmm. you specifically, <laughs> uh, to intensive farming, right? Which is feeding everybody. And then, well, machines helped. Robots? uh not yet not yet they they will come oh, the robots mean. will come <laughs> so <laughs> not come soon enough so all good right we we fed a ton of folks everybody had jobs we used the land we fed ourselves you know why chase animals for food when when we can grow it grains are amazing
1: can if i can honestly come the paleo guys uh i mean mm-hmm. we probably don't have a lot of them um but i think they're <laughs> mostly crossfit anyways and they're strong i i've done it but Let's just say the endurance training side of CrossFit is
0: underdeveloped. I'm going to get hell from my best friend Chris over this. Yeah, and and
2: honestly, honestly, most Paleo people I know, self-identified Paleo people, use metal tools, uh, and so they're they're fairly inauthentic. uh,
0: Yeah, the whole the whole. I have so many questions about the whole thing. Thank you, Fred. Uh, All right, so uh, we'll just finish up here. Uh, So too much is is too much. You know, we cut down basically the Amazon, uh, among other large, beautiful, necessary forests. Uh, You know, the byproducts of turning the planet into a giant farmer are endless. Pesticides, Uh, chemical runoff, water usage, crushing natural environments, greenhouse gases. Cow burps. Cow cow burps and farts. Oh, we love talking about that. Yeah, so, so anyway, right now, you know, aside from pumping our livestock full of antibiotics, that could very well lead to, to zombies, we've got another issue. And uh-huh. that's that the population has doubled since
1: 1970. What, that's Infinity War. Don't, we can talk ta- to Thanos about please it. Please
0: don't talk about it. I haven't seen Infinity War yet, Fred. I don't know if you have either, but don't spoil anything.
1: He, Thanos would love this episode. It's the whole point.
0: <sighs> All right, so just stop it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, despite uh, basically zero babies being born, in japan and elsewhere recently we're, we're barreling like right towards 10 billion humans That's which a is a lot of mouths a lot of mouths to feed um but i, I should know we do produce like a fuck ton of food <laughs> is it a te- it's a technical it's term a tech, it's a measurement yeah, it's a unit of measure <laughs> so <laughs> um actually we oh you talked about this with emily cassidy in episode 14 but, right
1: i did but i mean you yeah, weren't our, you declined to join us for that one i
0: didn't decline i was on vacation okay The point I'm trying to make is Americans waste about 21% of edible, available food. In 2010, the U.S. food supply provided 4,000 calories per person per day. And the daily recommended is what, 20,000? No, 2,000. Right, 2,000. So that's a lot of waste. 20,000. Can you imagine? That's like that's like uh, Michael Phelps and his pancakes. I think you misheard me. I said 2,000. What did you hear? Sure.
1: The point is, it's, it seems to be a lot of waste. We're making a lot of food, but we've got to feed a lot of people. So thanks for that, Brian. I'm, Pref- sh- it's Professor Brian. People's ears are now bleeding now. No, no.
2: I'll say, I mean, it, it was quite beautiful. I mean, I felt like I was present for the writing of We Didn't Start the Fire. the litany. <laughs>
0: uh fantastic song all right
1: well fred you're you're very kind um and if you haven't clicked the off button yet let's focus on (laughs) our topic now that we know what the hell we're going on about uh which is how the hell are we going to feed 10 billion people fred i do want to start by digging into that last bit of context of brian Baldo. i guess it's kind of two related points which is there's some estimates and this is way more complicated than i'm about to, to to give a credit for but that We humans are already produce enough food to feed the entire world as it is now, but simultaneously we waste an enormous amount of it. Um, it again, it's more complicated shipping availability, spoilage, et cetera. But I want to make sure our listeners understand the fundamentals of the situation, not just we aren't making enough food, we need to make more. Right? Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, so it's uh, that's dead on. And, and, and it actually, um, you know, it's uh, in, in almost every way uh, that situation is really lamentable. Uh, but in a sense, uh, it gives us uh, kind of the operating space we need uh, to confidently say that it's possible to reduce the environmental impacts of agriculture, right? That so if we can, at uh, the sort of astronomically high crop yields, that are achieved in conventional agriculture now produce you know uh 50% more 100% more 150% more calories that are needed to actually feed people uh if uh, if we had a more equitable uh, distribution economy and just a more uh, kind of rational food system, then that gives us pretty good confidence that even if we have to get into territory of only you know ninety percent of astronomical right you know for crop <laughs> yields right. um, that we've got we've got some operating space here to uh, to kind of not. Get confounded by this uh false dichotomy that traditionally has been drawn uh, between feeding the planet uh and uh and quote unquote saving the environment mm-hmm. you know as as if there was a future for feeding people you know with no natural resources anyway um right. but it's but the you know that these uh this is the point where these issues kind of really come together uh is that calorie's figure so it's um it's it's the right thing to focus on.
1: Uh, could you just, again, we're always trying to, uh, I, 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 dumbing it down is not the way to go, but put it on the le- level of our listeners listening to this on the subway, which is, can you just talk to, uh, give us the fundamentals of sort of crop yield and things like that so, so they have a, a basis to go on here, where we are now and what we're trying to fix?
2: Right. Yeah. So, so you know, so the whole and I'm going to give you the, the historical arc of agriculture uh, here because that's that'll be super relevant to stuff I'm imagining we'll discuss here in a little bit. Yeah. So people started out uh, 10,000 years ago uh, when what we really call agriculture started uh, eyeballing native plants, you know, wild plants. Uh, especially grass species like the ancestors of wheat, uh, and, and finding the plants that had, instead of uh, kind of super thin, wispy, tiny seeds, seeds that were only you know kind of tiny, thin mm-hmm. and wispy, right? <laughs> so wild plants only need a large enough seed to reproduce successfully and, and enough of them to reproduce successfully, and that's it people need more than that, uh, to use it as a, a source of, of carbohydrates, of calories. Uh, and so just, uh, the, and so those, those, uh, kind of ancestors of crops, uh, had yields that would be on the order of, you know, of a few pounds per acre, maybe. Uh, and gradually over, you know, 10,000 or so years, uh, we got from there, uh, with kind of the folk plant breeding that was happening, you know, accidental and and sort of uh, folkways, you know, and intentional eventually, so that corn and wheat and rice uh, were yielding um, many times uh, what their wild ancestors did, still only a fraction of what they do today. And so then, then you know, here we come to this, basically the, the very tail end of the 19th century, uh, the start of the 20th century, skipping over a few things that happened before that, um, and we get uh, the start of, uh, modern uh, applied biology and modern agricultural research, uh, and then at the same time, uh, kind of uh, an expansion of uh, the the technology base uh, for farming in a mechanized and and, uh, and and kind of external fertilizer input fashion, and so there, you know, this kind of gradual increase in yields going all the way back to ten thousand years ago takes a sharp upward turn as, uh, as you get uh, people, you know, again, starting at the 20th century who had a uh, modern, uh, you know, modern understanding of uh, plant genetics, plant physiology. Uh, they had, you know, tools like statistics and experimental design, started laying down the principles of, of plant breeding, and could start really intentionally and rapidly increasing crop yields, and then at the same time as we get into the 20th century, um, you private industry started sinking even more money than the public sector into that, and you 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 get this sort of uh, you know military fertilizer industrial complex that uh, that kind of comes together uh, to supercharge the agriculture sector. Uh, with cheap nitrogen fertilizer and cheap sources of other fertilizer inputs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's where yields really start climbing um, and have climbed steadily uh, to where they are today and still climbing. And so a, a lot of the environmental impacts, of course, of agriculture have been proportionate to those increases. Uh, and they, they haven't, uh, uh, you know, ha- haven't quote-unquote fed the world exactly but i guess just sort of as a as a as a feat of uh you know of biology you know uh, kind of like a feat of bodybuilding or something i mean there's this this uh, incredible expansion of yield to the point where even so, so even when I was uh, when I was growing up in the early '80s, you know, so there'd be maybe a few farmers in our county would have um, 200 bushel corn. You know, would be the, the, the yield that you dreamed about, right. just to <laughs> illustrate how this has been ongoing. And now, you know, my parents are disappointed if most of their farm isn't 200 bushel corn, just to kind of illustrate how we're still on that that trend to some extent.
1: To be clear, most of my reference points is field of dreams.
2: And Kevin <laughs> well, Kaufman? it's, it's about like that. Um, you, you measure baseball in slightly different units, uh, sure. than corn production, but it's a <laughs> same, same principle. But they were yeah. so
1: mad because he wasn't getting the yields and they said, you're going to have to close up the farm. And he said, no, there's ghosts playing baseball and that's going to bring in revenue, which I'm just saying you should consider. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 thought yeah. About this?
1: Um, all right. Well, that is all super helpful. And, and you mentioned in there and, you know, we've talked about this, Quite a bit, um, uh, which is, and it's not sort of the point of today, uh, obviously, it's an association, which is, which is the, the downsides of these increased yields and increased farming uh, and all the byproducts that, that come with it, which is pesticide and herbicide use and, and water runoff and things like that, I can imagine, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and soil erosion, uh, you know, is, is kind of the one that unites the, pa- the deep past and the, and the present.
1: Gotcha, uh, and and now th- this is something I, I know a little about, but not too much. I'm trying to educate myself a little more. Does does no-till farming ha- have any role in in that in improving the, that situation uh, soil erosion?
2: Yeah, growth? so so it does, and and let me kind of let, let me set up kind of a, a, a there's there's sort of a progression of three kinds of farming that that are going on here three ways to improve on uh, on these uh, these uh, negative environmental impacts of agriculture so one of them is to uh, make uh, conventional quote-unquote conventional farming you know mainstream farming put as many sustainability tweaks onto it as we can and mm-hmm. so no-till is the is the most important example of that so we're doing less soil disturbance uh that's uh we're we're keeping the soil more covered by plant matter we're not churning it up uh and aerating it in a way that uh that, that results in the organic matter breaking down and soil particles being washed away not using as much fuel uh, for extra tractor passes, stuff like that. And, so that's, yeah, a, that's an example of a, of a tweak that, uh, that's, that's an important way to sort of slow down the bleeding, you know, and, so that's, yeah, go ahead. No, I
1: was just going to say, and we haven't done a good enough job of digging into that, and, and maybe you're the right person, and maybe this is a separate conversation entirely. It sounds like the state of American soil, period,
2: is not in a good place. Is that right? Yeah, we well, really so- beat it up pretty bad. So, so the state of, of, of human you know soil human civilization soil is is not in in good shape if you go basically all the way back to the beginning uh, the Mesopotamia you know Fertile Crescent I mean there were uh, there have always been uh, kind of boom and bust cycles in human civilization driven by soil erosion um, we have never found a mode of farming that doesn't steadily deplete soil resources Mm -hmm. and we we've applied some you know we've learned in 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 more recent times to apply some tweaks that slow it down but over the long term you know slow is almost as bad as fast um and you know and and that's where so this so improvements to conventional ag like no-till are one strategy which is which helps uh another strategy is to shake up Farming with the crops we currently use more than that, uh, using organic or regenerative farming methods, and that helps. You know, we need more of that again to further slow down the bleeding. But we know if we kind of look at the the kind of the harsh, unforgiving data, you know, here that none of these uh, none of these farming systems. On average, can actually uh, stop soil erosion. Right. They can bring it down to a very small level, and I'm talking about like you know less than a millimeter a year of soil loss, for example. Right. But you know, but if you if you let the clock run, it ultimately it doesn't matter whether you're losing a you know a meter a year or a millimeter. Eventually, you're exactly. gonna you're gonna lose the soil, right? Sure. And and so that's that's where. Uh, our problem statement and kind of proposed solution to this comes in at the Land Institute is what is, uh, what's sort of the third approach that, that goes back more fundamentally and, and addresses how you, you, instead of having very slow negative soil formation, how do we have positive soil formation like happened under natural ecosystems to build our soils in the first place? Gotcha.
0: Considering all that and, you know, do do those tweaks and and adjustments uh, that are being made um is it will that be enough uh to- so, yeah it, so, it sounds like
1: you uh, you you guys feel like an overhaul is the way yeah, to go
2: Yeah so so here's here's the metaphor I usually think about it in that you know you're you're in a car wreck here um great. you know that you're you're great. laying on the street bleeding you know yes. this is this is actually how I start job interviews with candidates <laughs> uh the way, we talked about uh,
1: you probably haven't listened to us much. We talk about this all the time because Brian rides a fucking motorcycle in I ride Los a Angeles. So we talk yeah,
2: about so potential is, car wrecks this, all the time. This is on point, right? So, so Brian is yeah, on his, sui- his he's on his suicide rocket here, right? right? Good, ooh, and, and, and and bites the pavement here, bleeding out on the pavement. I'm just it go. would be really helpful for an ambulance to to show up sure. and some paramedics to jump out and put a tourniquet on it, put a bandage, whatever stop the bleeding or sure. slow it down greatly um, so that Brian can live to get to the hospital and face the insurance bills Chances right? like for it. No. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, uh, a, but it's, it, it's really important that there's a hospital waiting there with a team of doctors who can actually patch up the wound, mm-hmm, right? right? And so, so the metaphor here is that the tweaks that we can do uh, to farming with annual crops, tweaks like going to no-till, uh, tweaks like going to organic methods, that's the paramedic, right? Mm-hmm. It's vitally important because otherwise the patient dies before we can do anything, t- but Brian, it's not right. enough. You know, you, you can't go home at that point. You've got to get actually patched up, you know, some surgery or at the hospital or something, and that's where we come in, is working in the background uh, to to create this kind of big fix uh, in the form of a perennial agriculture based on perennial grain crops.
0: And now we're talking
1: Kernza. Right. So is that, is that yeah. where we're
2: headed here? So, yeah, so Kernza is leading example. Yeah.
1: I have been uh, a little obsessed with Kernza for quite a while before I knew your name or who was actually involved. And then, um, and then uh, we, we started to hear a little more about it. Yeah. And then uh, one of my favorite companies uh, started making a beer with your, with Kernza. So um, if you, well, if you could tell us, tell our listeners what Kernza is, uh, and, and why it's important. And while you do that, I actually have a couple cans of that beer here, and we're just going to uh, open it up yeah, and we're see pretty how it excited. tastes. I haven't tried it yet.
2: Yeah, well, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, so Kernza is uh, the trade name that we came up with for uh, a grass called intermediate wheatgrass uh, that we have bred into a grain crop. Um, despite the fact that the phrase intermediate wheatgrass, just rolls off the tongue, you know. It's highly <laughs> motivational. We still thought we would put a different name on it, uh, and came up with a name that uh, that evokes both uh, kernels of grain and uh, the Kansa territory, uh, the root word for Kansas. So uh, that we oh, are here. Very cool. Basically, what this is is it's intermediate wheatgrass. Kerns is a cousin of wheat. It's uh, it's related to wheat uh, like barley or rye. So it's not a kind of wheat, but it's it's similar. And it's been used a little bit as a forage crop, a hay crop in the Western U.S., but really minor forage crop. But for a for a hay crop, it has really big seeds starting out. Uh, and, and big seeds like we were talking about with the you know the dawn of agriculture, still pretty small. But noticeably bigger than the other uh, kind of native grasses around. Can I um, two things if I can pause yeah, you real quick? Ahead. One,
1: yeah. uh Kearns is delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right, I'm going turns in. Turns out, uh, and two, uh, not everyone is from uh, in Kansas or from Virginia like me. Uh, could you tell us the difference between a wheat wheat and hay as far as why that's important?
2: Uh, right so when it, when I refer to hay I just so I, I just mean uh grass that you harvest the stems and leaves for cattle or other livestock to eat so you're mm-hmm. not harvesting like a seed off of it for grain okay. um and and here's where well and let's take a step back here and talk about perennials here right so uh cuz that's where the distinction comes in so if we look at uh all of the bad stuff that happens under grain crop agriculture and and grain crops are kind of the the base of agriculture. And and we look at how all that same bad stuff is not happening in native ecosystems, you know, a prairie, a rainforest, African savanna, whatever. Uh, And then we look at what the difference is between a field of corn or or wheat or rice and a prairie. Uh, One of the biggest differences is that the prairie is made up of perennial plants that regrow from year to year. And the agricultural Grain crop field is made up of annual plants that only live for one year, uh, really a fraction of a year. And then have to be replanted all over again,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and and so there's there's a lot of reasons that we can go into you know if if you want to about why perennial plants perform a lot better, but the but they perform hugely better for building soil, sequestering carbon, clean water, all that stuff. Um, so obviously you know uh, converting grain crop production to perennials would be great. There's only one big problem with that, and mm-hmm. that's that perennial grain crops have never existed. In the ten thousand year history of agriculture, oh, uh, the the only way that we use perennials in agriculture, and it, I mean it's very important, is is in hay production, you know, pasture grazing for livestock, and you know, nut and fruit crops, tree crops, things like that. Um, and so, so that's where we, you know, that's why. And that connects back to where I'm, I'm talking about finding a, a pasture crop or a hay crop, an in intermediate wheatgrass that has some potential. It's a perennial, and that has some potential to become a grain crop with some help from plant breeding and and uh, agricultural research. So we basically we took this, you know, this kind of modest forage crop, hay crop, uh, and uh, and our plant breeders here, and increasingly now. Uh, uh, plant breeders at, uh, at universities and, and collaborating sites in different parts of the U.S. And, and in the world have been doing what amounts to really, really fancy version of growing a bunch of Kernza uh, each year and uh, looking at each plant one by one. Picking the ones that look good and throwing the rest of them out, and then planting the seed from the one. You know, if you if you get a PhD and use a lot of fancy statistics and do that, you know, then you're a plant breeder. Um, and so every time we do that, the seeds get a little bigger, they get a little heavier. Uh, the the plant doesn't uh, drop all the seeds on the ground. You know, quite as much before it can be harvested. All of these traits that map exactly to what was was happening ten thousand years ago, uh, when the ancestors of wheat were becoming wheat, right? Except in, instead of doing it uh, over centuries and millennia, we're doing it over. Uh, years and decades here, uh, and so here, and so we've gotten to the point with Kernza. Uh, so among all the other perennial grain crops, we're working on Kernza's kind of out in the lead here, uh, in in that it's to the point where we have plants that are actually perennials. Um, they don't live as long productively for grain as we want them to eventually, but they live for several years producing grain. Uh, they're perennial. They produce a usable uh, amount of grain. A yield that's high enough to actually harvest, uh, you know, commercially on a limited basis, and the quality and the taste is is useful and. Even you know, even to discerning palates like yours, outstanding, right? And so we've got a crop. This <laughs> Easy. is the point. <laughs> this is the the first. I, I I have never been sarcastic in my entire life, right? Take everything I say at, at face value. So so this so Kernza represents uh, the first perennial grain crop, um, the first meaningful perennial grain crop in the history of humanity. Be That's honest. what's in that wow. can you just opened, right? So. So, so that's the point we're at. Uh, it uh, has a long way to go to sort of achieve the level of cropness that, that, uh, that, it, that, that it needs to be at. But mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's a crop now, and it's actually in really limited production. And so that's kind of an amazing um, fruition of the work that's been going on here, and that will be, be continuing. Wow, that's so great.
0: It sounds awesome. Um, all right, so let's get a uh, let's get a little controversial here um, and, and you know, back things up a bit because it sounds amazing. Sounds like yeah, a revolution, <laughs> quite quite uh, the wheat. Um, so talk to us about about GMOs. Is is Kernza a GMO?
2: Right. So usually when we say GMOs, so yeah, genetically and, modified organisms.
1: And, uh, again, the more you can, uh, you know, first grader illustrate this because yeah, yeah, everybody right. sees it on the packaging. Everybody is right, taken right. aside, and nobody realizes how complicated uh and what this really means which isn't surprising
2: so so what it what it what it means when we so the words genetically modified organism um sound like they mean anytime you take something and change the genetics in any way but that's actually not what it means at all it's something much more specific where you use a particular set of biotech methods to take DNA uh, from one usually relatively unrelated organism and put it into another one. So we're talking about taking a gene uh, from a bacterium and putting it into a corn plant uh, so that the corn plant uh, resists insect pests, right? Mm Um, that's, you know, that's GMO. They actually, I mean, to, to do it, just to sort of illustrate how kind of interventional a technique this is, to do that, they actually take essentially a BB, like a steel BB, and they roll it around in a solution with this DNA, and then they literally shoot it at some corn tissue, right? Whoa. And then it's sort of forcibly injected into the tissue. And if they do that a bunch of times, you know, then at least one of the samples it'll take, right? So, so think of, you know, that's That's what you should think of when you, you think about the term aggressive. I mean, it really, it really is. Um, I mean, again, it's sort of the, you know, the, the, the military agricultural, uh, you know, complex here. So, so that's, I mean, that tool is it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of frivolous things that can be done with it. There's probably some useful things that can be done with it, but it's a very specific thing. So more broadly, what, what human beings have been doing for ten thousand years um, by at first accidentally and increasingly intentionally uh, doing plant breeding, you know we 're modifying the genetics of a crop by doing that, just simply that process of growing two plants, picking the one that looks better and throwing the other one away, and then planting the seeds of the one that looks better. you know that is uh, what we call uh, traditional or classical plant breeding. And that's, you know, that's most of the improvement in crops uh, that's happened throughout human history, including the last 100 years, even the last 30 years. Most of the big uh, changes and improvements have come through those means. Now, these days, they're backed by a lot of fancy statistics, uh, a lot of fancy biotech tools where you can kind of look at what the genome looks like and you can track your progress. Um, but um, you know, for the 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 work that we do uh, uh, to date uh, is, is 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 you know essentially entirely classical plant breeding. And interestingly enough, most of the work that even the big private companies do uh, is is classical plant breeding, and the GMO stuff is just the the most kind of controversial and costly sure. and invisible.
1: So, if you're not doing anything radical to to create Kernza, I guess the question is like, A, why did it take so long? And B, why was it difficult to create and, and, and is such an innovation? And C, what are the obstacles kind of going forward?
2: Yeah, excellent question. So Sorry, it's like for, four parts. For, but. for one thing, yeah, well, no, that's that's what we call uh, a simple level question out here, right? You know, maybe throw me 16 <laughs> or, or 20 next time. We're pretty simple. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, and, and I've already forgotten essentially all but one part of it. Yeah, so, so you can do the job. Basically, but, yeah. if
1: you're, if you're not doing anything radical to create Kearns, if you, if you didn't have to do that to innovate it, to, to create it,
2: yeah.
1: uh, why, why is it the first time something like this is showing up? And also, uh, you know, why is it such an innovation in three if it's, if it, I, you know, I guess w- what are those obstacles? Like you said, it's in limited production.
2: Um, yeah. You know, so,
1: if we're using pretty inherently traditional methods,
2: right? So, so the you know the, the start of that is it's just it's taken a long time for anybody uh, to define the problem in as basic terms as the Land Institute and its collaborators have, uh, and then actually be crazy enough to try to do something about it. You know, to basically page all the way back. Uh, to the the first chapter of the Choose Your, Your Own Adventure book, right, and and, so and re-examine that very first fork in the road mm-hmm. that uh, that was taken in domesticating uh, annual species mm-hmm. rather than perennials. Th- that you you pretty much have to go all the way to the beginning. This so it's it's taken a while uh, uh, for anybody to be sort of crazy enough to focus on such a fundamental issue. And then two, this is, is not an easy task to do the plant breeding, to turn, um, you know, again, this, this um, to take the example of Kernza. You know, we, we work on a number of other perennial crops, but to take uh, something that has just been sort of fat and happy as a pasture crop for the last 300,000 years or something uh, and then convince it all of a sudden that it needs to grow a uh, much bigger seed and a lot more of it and do that every year and so forth changes that it takes and again not the kind of science fiction changes where we're you know we're putting eel dna in it or something but just the re you know reshuffling reshuffling the, the order that the intermediate wheatgrass genes appear in, the, the changes that it takes genetically and physiologically are significant. And it, uh, and it takes uh, a lot of slow and steady kind of gradual work to get it done, and slow and steady, gradual work and a delayed payoff are not what we're geared to do in our society, and in, in terms of taking on research projects.
1: What do you mean? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, right. I mean, you know, I'm light bulb. Uh, you know, there, you know, the, the private industry isn't set up to do it uh, because they need, you know, profits the next quarter or whatever. Uh, government uh, isn't set up to do it because they need a win, you know, during uh, the current election cycle, and so. Even once uh, the problem was formulated, it's taken a while uh, to get people to pay enough attention to it that it's actually worth. That this is so critical, you know, that perennial grain crops are so critical to the future of the planet that we need to inconvenience ourselves to work on them, you know, mm-hmm. to do something that doesn't fit into the template for either private sector or public sector agricultural research. So we're getting into something here, you know, so so with the, the point that Kerns is at, we've been working on it. We, we've been working on this problem overall for 42 years. We've been working on Kerns uh, more like a dozen years, so mm-hmm. it's actually... That's what passes for super fast progress, right? And this kind of (laughs) of problem uh, is like a dozen years. It's gotten to the point where it's just ready for basically a beta test, you know, on the market uh, here right now, including the beer that you, you know, you just chugged down in in one go there.
0: Easy, easy. Oh, mine's gone, yeah. (laughs) yeah,
2: you're a monster. (laughs) <laughs> so well, and it is. Uh, I'm, I'm going to point out too. It is still morning where you guys are. I think so. It's five so, o'clock uh,
0: somewhere. This not, really not judgy.
2: Not that I, <laughs> no. It's it's not it's not judgy because I'm putting an asterisk on it that says not judgy. Oh, perfect, um, perfect. So yeah. So so what we're really um, hoping to do, and in fact what we're seeing, is that we get into this kind of iterative thing here with developing the crop more. Uh, putting it out commercially on a limited scale and then getting people's kind of capturing people's imagination that way, right? It's a lot easier to visualize the future of something that you can actually hold in your hand, that you can taste, that you can feel uh, than it is when it's just an abstraction. So we're hoping that this is the, the beginning of a cycle where we can develop it, get it a little more broadly on the market, Uh, capture the attention of eaters, you know, of farmers, of policymakers, researchers, you know, foundation, you know, grant officers, and get more interest and more funding ultimately uh, into not just us, but everybody who's who's helping to work on this worldwide and develop the crop that much better, get it more visibility, get it even more out on the market, you know, kind of trigger another wave of increased attention and funding and kind of climb the ladder, you know, that way to the point where Kernza is not just a beta test, you know, and it's not just the start of a crop, but that it's a really robust crop, right. and that we, we have not just Kernza, but we have half a dozen, a dozen, you know, as, as the, the years go on, you know, many perennial grain crops that can be adapted to local conditions, you know, around the world and different parts of the, the, the food system and and so forth. So, so that's kind of where we, we are there as we're climbing that ladder and kind of iterating along that process.
0: So there's, yeah, so you're, that, we're... You're talking about the, the sort of long term plans, yes, of, of currency and these other perennials. Can what what are like specific? Can Can you be specific about like a big impact, a potential impact? Sort
1: yeah. What what are what are sort of the the details on on growth and and how you see this being built out and how that then translate to an effect of again, uh, you know, by mid century feeding feeding nine to ten billion people.
2: Yeah. Well, so let's go in terms of effect. Let, let's actually go here, uh, kind of a quick summary version to exactly what it is a perennial plant does that an annual doesn't. <laughs> so, you know, we we have uh, we have this. Uh, this, uh, you know, this this picture that we u- usually display at, at this point at, at uh, you know, I don't know if you can see it over the microphone right now or not, uh, where we have can. a a Kernza plant with its full root system side by side with a wheat plant, an annual wheat plant with its full root system. The wheat plant, you know, a farmer would look at that and smile. It's a very healthy, vigorous plant. Uh, it has a root system um, that is, in this photo, is, is maybe five feet, deep and next to it there's this kernza plant that has this root system that's it it's i mean some people call it the zz top photo sometimes right it's got this root system that's improbably long dense shaggy Kind of mat of roots, right? And and this is it's showing uh, it's showing like twelve feet of roots, uh, not only vastly deeper than the wheat plant's root system, uh, but denser, more massive, right? And so uh, every you know every ounce of root tissue that that's there uh, below the of plant that's how carbon gets into the ground mm-hmm. that's how we build soil organic matter uh for soil health that's how we sequester carbon so that it's not in the atmosphere um and that root system more broadly is how the plant uh, intercepts uh, all of the fertilizer nutrients before they run off and pollute groundwater um you know how it resists drought kind of all this stuff And so the benefits that Kernza has at any grain yield level, like we're already at the point where we're getting 100% benefits below ground, right? And so the the impact that we can get from it just doing its perennial plant thing uh, on whatever acre of land that it's on Mm -hmm. um, is kind of fully on display there. Sure. I mean, so, so that's kind of uh, uh, of where the crop is at, you know, in terms of of that part of the impact, and then in, in terms of the rest of the question. So, the the grain that's being produced right now. So there are, there are hundreds of thousands of acres uh, of, of, you know, corn production uh, in, in an equivalent region in the U.S. where we have like 400 acres of kerns of production at this point. Right. So it's like pure beta test right now. Right, you sure, know, sure. It's, it's really rocking and rolling on those acres, but it's absolutely inconsequential, you know, as, a, as a, an overall you know, change to mm-hmm. the landscape. And so, so it really is. It's to demonstrate it. It's to learn by doing, uh, and kind of get us positioned to increase the yield of the crop uh, to the point where uh, the demand for it and the practicality of growing a lot of it is greatly enhanced. Um, And so we're at the point, um, you know, in terms of numbers, uh, if you were to measure Kernza in the same units that wheat is measured in, uh, Kernza yields about, you know, 15, 12 to 15 bushels an acre right now, Mm -hmm. uh, where wheat would yield anywhere from, say, 35 to 100 bushels an acre, depending on where you are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't need to be at 100 bushels an acre with Kernza, ultimately, but we need to be a lot higher than 15, right? And so. So that's, we're starting at this kind of specialty crop positioning where we're growing a little bit of it and it's going into premium beer and, you know, premium breakfast cereal and things like that uh, to drive this uh, more and more of this plant breeding process that's going to get it up to the kind of yields and get it up to the kind of acreage where it's starting to displace uh, a significant fraction of of the wheat acres in the world right and together with the other perennial crops that we and our collaborators are working on that we're ultimately replacing annual crops with perennials and so we're getting food that is for mm-hmm. practical purposes as abundant and is certainly you know even more uh, nutritious and and uh, and enjoyable as we have now, but we're getting uh, a net benefit to soil and water and air rather than a net negative. And what, so, what are your biggest obstacles to reaching um, that? Yeah, so I would, I mean, just to list them off, I mean, funding, funding, and funding. Um, <laughs> sure, you don't sure. say, because you guys are non-,
1: non nonprofit. Who who owns Kernza?
2: So, uh, so nobody nobody owns the biology, right? And that's we've right. we've been very intentional about that. We actually own the Kernza name, right. um, so we set it's a, just a trademark that we've registered, and and we set some standards, uh, uh, you know, that essentially dictate that you actually have to be growing Kernza in order to sell a product and call it Kernza You know, is basically what that amounts to. Right. Um, you, you can estimate all of the spending on research on annual grain crops, corn, wheat, soybeans, rice, globally uh, at about $10 billion a year, billion mm-hmm. with a B, mm-hmm. uh, with us. And I mean, at this point, we have uh, two or three dozen collaborating institutions uh, uh, on every continent except for Antarctica You know, huge increase since the early days when it was just some crazy guys in a shed, you know, in the middle of Kansas working on this stuff. But still, at this point, the global annual spend on perennial grain crop research is not even to 10 million million with an M. Yeah. Right. And so, if we want to be serious about this the way that we're serious about squeaking out, you know, the extra increment of yield from corn so that we can be. You know, more awash in high fructose corn syrup. Mm. If we're serious about this, um, you know, then then we need funding, funding, and funding, basically. Um, and I, I don't mean just to the Land Institute; I mean to this whole collection right. uh, of universities and government agriculture ministries and farmer groups. Uh, again, worldwide, you know, we have partners. Uh, that are in the biggest agricultural universities in the U.S., uh, ranging all the way to we're working with a women's farmer group in Mali, you know, to 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 help develop our, our perennial grain sorghum, um, and all of the people who make decisions about money that goes into agricultural research or who influence those decisions need to be tuning in here to, you know, again, if we want to take this, you know, this really transformative solution. As seriously as the next round of tinkering with annual crops, um, we've got to get serious about funding it. We don't need 10 billion dollars a year because we can work a lot smarter, not harder kind of than that right, sure but we definitely globally there needs to be a lot more than 10 million dollars a year
0: are there are there other companies doing similar work? Do, does Kernza have competition you know besides wheat I For guess
2: alternatives it doesn't
1: have to be about competition, Brian
0: with me, it does. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. So it's, uh, well, you know, I mean, competition is, it's an ecological phenomenon. I mean, it all, it all comes out, uh, in the overall ecosystem performance. So, but, but at this point, everybody who's working on this is kind of one big happy family. So it's more, you know, collaboration on, and they're not even alternatives, but they're, they're complementary crops. You know, we don't, we don't envision, um, you know, replacing, all crops with Kernza, right? I mean, Kernza is a replacement for the the soft, you know, wheat that goes into crackers and pastries and things like that. And That's we're best working best. on a, a perennial wheat that, that is a replacement for the bread wheat that goes into raised bread.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I was reading about You know, that.
2: perennial sunflower for vegetable oil, you know, on and on. Um, and so, so there's, uh, there's about six of these crops that we're working on here. Uh, and we, for each of those crops, we have collaborators spread around the world. Uh, and then there's, there's another crop, uh, perennial crop, perennial rice, that we sponsor work on, but don't do it here in, in, uh, in Kansas. Um, and so we need all these to keep moving forward steadily because no one crop, is is going to be sufficient to perennialize agriculture
1: that seems to make sense so we'll 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 take competition where it comes we got to feed a lot of people
2: yeah well and it'll it'll get it so whatever you know whatever agricultural economy that we have in in 10 years in 50 years in 100 years that's the agricultural economy that perennial crops will be in right and so Sure. so for the foreseeable future uh, we're you know I'm assuming that we're going to have a market a market economy here and so in the process of commercializing this we're already just in the first stages of there being enough companies enough food companies purchasing this and offering products with it they're just starting maybe to compete with each other just a little bit and we'll see uh, people competing eventually uh, with different Releasing different varieties of cornza, uh, people competing to be the best and most effective company for cleaning cornza and dehulling huh. it, and all those kind of things will arise as as the crop, you know, kind of leaves this beta test phase and and really really gets going.
1: Sure, sure, so um, exciting. Okay, so so much of this sounds like has been done and understandably done. Uh, you know, not, I don't want to say behind closed doors, but but but. Um, out of the reach of of general uh, American society, which is kind of how everything is when it comes to agriculture, which is why things like the nightmare that is the farm bill uh don 't change so what are the other steps that our listeners need to be aware of or to be voicing our opinions on what what gets what else gets momentum going because you talked about funding, so let 's get again specific you know is it sending funding to you guys um are there other places that are doing similar work? Are we writing to and calling specific senators and representatives uh, to affect the, the farm bill and things like this? Or maybe it isn't farm bill related. Are we writing to specific food behemoths, corporations using their dollar to use Kearns as their wheat? Uh, talk to us to how, about how we can start to formulate some steps here for, for folks to take.
2: Right, so so it's all of the above. You know, we we need uh, we need so the people where the the answer is sort of the most satisfying at this point uh, are people who are in a direct position to influence this, or who are within a degree or two of somebody who's in a direct position to influence this. So you know, so foundations that make grants to environmental causes or agricultural causes uh, mm-hmm. need need to be considering uh, supporting this work, whether it's at the Land Institute, whether it's at uh, the University of Minnesota yeah, or whether it's at- Specific examples, you know, that's
1: what I mean. You, yeah. you say grants, uh, people that give these grants, like who, who are we talking about?
2: yeah well so i mean i i'm i'm not going to name you know foundation names but but i mean it's they the 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 every every region of the country is loaded with charitable foundations uh, of various sizes that have different kinds of grant making portfolios you know and 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 any any foundation that is remotely uh... in in the area of environment food or agriculture um, if they're serious about making a difference in any of those areas ought to be supporting the development of a perennial uh, agriculture and food system. The same for public sector grant programs. Uh, the USDA, uh, and this is one of you know many places the Farm Bill uh, is sort of involved in this. Uh, the, the USDA, US Department of Agriculture, has grant programs that are a really important source of funding uh, for universities and organizations, and in some cases companies, uh, to develop kind of cutting edge uh, ag practices. Once again, I mean, if we're really serious about about this, those programs uh, ought to be supporting uh, more perennial agriculture research. Uh, now, and, and here's the point where for the average person, Um, You know, you want to kind of grab a, you know, pitchfork and a torch and, you know, march into the street and make a difference, but, uh, or at least that's how we do it in Kansas still. Uh, And, uh, and, but it really takes more uh, the form of uh, things like writing to your elected officials uh, and just getting this on their radar screen, right? I mean, if your U.S. representative, your U.S. congressperson's office uh, has an ag staffer Make sure that that person knows what the land institute is, knows what perennial grain crops are. Um, these are like placing little grains of sand onto the scales you know right so it's sure. it seems pretty insignificant you know for any one person to do that, but ultimately we 've got to build up the awareness and a sense of possibility and relevance and importance here sure. uh, with the decision makers uh, on this kind of thing. Okay. Needless to say if you you know if you're in a position where you're sh- you're able to shop at a store that is carrying one of the few kerns of products that's out there now. By all means, buy that. You know okay. that's important. Um, but but mostly anything that you can do uh, to influence and uh, and just spread the word, right? That this that, that that the the idea of a perennial agriculture exists, and that it's what we've got uh, mm-hmm. uh, to do to kind of close the sustainability gap in ag.
1: No. Can, can I ask a actually a specific question because we're big fans of getting people involved on and and firing up you know as as local as their city council where specifically can kernza be grown what what sort of a hardiness zone does it need
2: it, it, at the moment where it's it grows best is probably in a band Uh, kind of from central Kansas uh, up to northern Minnesota, uh, kind of in in that region. If you take the example of wheat, uh, wheat is grown over, I don't know, like a third or a half of of all of the United States and a lot of Canada. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: ultimately, Kernza will be adapted, you know, probably almost that that broadly regionally. Um, But at the moment, it's it's kind of, uh, it performs best in that part of the Midwest. It'll do okay in a lot of other places. Uh-huh. Okay,
1: that's just helpful because uh, you know we yeah. don't need people in yeah. Tallahassee uh, going. Oh, uh, we yeah, should be going, Carissa. Like, yeah. Eh,
2: well, and so <laughs> here's gorgeous. that's it. And, and here's here's the, here's the thing that that makes this um, you know kind of new territory that for so many problems related to sustainability and justice and equity you know we've we've figured out that we actually have all the solutions we need right and and so it's not so much a matter of developing new solutions as implementing the one that we have mm-hmm. this is like the one area where the 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 next big thing is is actually to develop to fully like develop out to build out the solution right. and so in a lot of other cases you know if you're talking about the transition from farming organic cro- from mm-hmm. farming annual crops conventionally to organically you know, people just need to go buy more of, in the, more of it in the store sure. and, and farm more of it. And that's the action step. Yeah. It's a little different here right now with Kearns and other perennial grains because uh, we have about as many people raising it as makes sense for the state of the market right sure. now. Sure. And, uh, and, so, and so the action is, is to get the get the research and development spooled up here.
1: Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, Brian's giving me the stink eye, but I'm going to ask you a cross disciplinary question that we definitely don't have time for. Mm. Uh, but I'm going to ask anyways, cause you're a big idea guy. Are you ready? Um, uh, no, but go ahead anyway. All right. <laughs> this is so far off base. Do we need, do we, do we this need to be about
2: robots? Isn't it?
1: hold on, do we need to be simultaneously planning a backup slash second civilization on another planet to take yeah, some of the robots? Logo? Like Asgardia. About robots. Like not, um, no, Asgardia is Red, a failed you know about state. Asgardia, yeah. we can talk about so, that later. I, I say right. this with all sincerity, knowing it'll take an unfathomably long time and probably fail over and over again. And it'll start with like Matt Damon, obviously, and a few more folks. And right. then I just... I, I just feel like we need to be thinking about alleviating some of the pressure on Earth.
2: You should check out. Yeah. Quinn. so so here's the, the so the main struggle that we're engaged in right now is to make sure that the earth does not become like one tenth as bad as Mars is, right Right. because like, if it's if, if we even get like 10% percent in a direction towards Earth being like Mars, we're totally screwed, right? And, and so if you visualize the effort then on the other side of it that it takes to, to make Mars Earth-like enough so that it's even relevant to anything, even these really tough questions like completely, uh, you know, reforming grain crop agriculture from scratch <laughs> right. look easy, right, relative <laughs> to, uh, you know, to, 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 this, to this robot fantasy here. So, I'm just
1: trying to consider all options. That's all I'm saying.
2: Yeah, um, well...
0: You guys should think about maybe just joining the civilization that will be Asgardia. Uh, all right, page. so we're, we're getting uh, pretty close to time here. Yep. Um, Fred, thank you so much for for being here and talking we with really us today. Really appreciate it. Very it, much awesome. appreciate it. If,
2: if you guys know Matt Damon, um, though, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm kind of thinking about that last point you made. Send him our way. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. no, no, for sure. He is, <laughs> he is a friend of the pod. Um, hey, Fred, do you have any uh, recommendations on uh, who else we could talk to here on the podcast? Not not just uh, only, you know, conversations and topics like this, but anybody that might be able to uh, help us save the earth.
1: <laughs> things that right. are, uh, people, people that are driving things that are affecting humans uh, and Americans, and we got listeners all over the world right now, or will be in the next, you know, five, 10, 20 years. Um, right. you know, people who are, who are making those moves here to either, again, save the whole joint or even upgrade us to something better.
2: Right. Yeah. And, and so are you, I mean, is this, are you wanting something that's uh, that's, that's podcast air friendly here? Or is this just uh, whoa, whoa, just what are beautiful? you offering? Okay, all right, well I'll, I'll pause so you can edit this part out so um, so anything anybody uh, <laughs> anybody who is working on uh, a, uh, a a sustainable rational uh, economy and a pathway to get there uh, that will that will help uh, people make better decisions than we've historically made you know collectively right. um, that's ultimately uh, going to have to be out there if. Uh, if even a completely transformative solution on the ecological side, like perennial grain crops and a perennial agriculture, is actually going to make any difference, right? If we just sure. parachute, you know, that that new idea, that new paradigm uh, into the middle of the, uh, the the kind of messed up. Uh, Economy and and politics and and, and kind of business culture that we have now, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, So so we're always in the market uh, for hearing from people who have an equally bold vision uh, for how we order our economic life. Uh, that we have uh, for how we manage uh, mm-hmm. land and grow crops uh, and that helps so, a- anybody anybody who's working on other uh, dimensions of land management in a really far-reaching way uh, people who want to have uh, really good uh, pasture and grazing crops the crops that are already perennials uh, are right on point uh, people who have a vision sure. for mm-hmm. sustainable natural resource management you know whether it's fisheries or forests or whatever. And, and uh, do
1: you have any specific recommendations for folks for us to talk mm-hmm. to like mm-hmm. along those lines?
2: Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'll, I, I'll email you. Let me think about that. And I'll, yeah, email. yeah, you. Sure, for sure. yeah, yeah, yep, no, no, no. Yep. That's
1: super helpful. Just because, yeah. you know, uh, we, we want people like you who are like, listen, <laughs> there's some, some big things that need to be fixed. And I'm working on that day to day and that matters. And people need to know about those folks and be able to support their mission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah um awesome uh, this has been uh, so fantastic we 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 really can't thank you enough and and uh, as you pointed out folks listeners um there's so many great uh, environmental charitable organizations that are out there across the country, across the world, uh, that are doing great things. Use tools like the always amazing Charity Navigator uh, to check them out and and talk to them and, and ask if this is something that they're working on or interested in or if they've even heard of. Um, and you can point them our way for education if you need it um, or straight to the Land Institute. You know, write to your elected officials, bring up the importance of this industry, whether you live in the Kerns Belt or not. Ask if they know what the Land Institute is. Do they know what perennials are? Um, and on the small scale, like you said, uh, byproducts use currency. It seems like a little thing, but it does. Uh, that stuff does generally and hopefully uh, add up to to spread the word, especially with the way everybody is connected and amplified these days. Awesome. I'm,
0: Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, hey, Fred. Uh, we ha- we ask everybody on the podcast uh, uh, a few like last questions. A-, a bit of a lightning round, if that sounds all right. Sounds good. Uh, Okay. This one, it's just not in the... This is, yeah, we got to fix this one. I got to fix
1: this. It's not lightning round, (laughs) but feel free to make it so. When was the first time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful?
2: Yeah, I mean it was really early on because that's I'm fortunate to have uh, uh, both of my parents have a really strong compass that way, uh, and really the idea that you you know you, you can walk into any situation and be sizing it up uh, to make it better. Um, so I was really lucky that that moment probably arrived you know age like five or six or something.
0: Awesome, that's pretty it's early. Amazing, that'll drive you. Um, all right, uh, how do you consume the news, Fred?
2: New York times online, uh, primarily. And then whatever my, uh, whatever my motley, uh, social media connections are posting on their timelines.
0: Of course. <laughs> um, all right. And, uh, we like this one. If you could Amazon prime one book to Donald Trump, what would that book be?
2: Oh, man. And does this actually, it has to actually literally be a book and not just something else that looks like a book?
0: (laughs) It has to be a real book. If he can read it, he will. If he can't read it, uh, you know, prove it. Maybe it'll be read read to him or something. Absolutely.
1: Uh, Audio book, audio, I mean, anything.
2: Yeah. Where where to start? I mean, so it would have to (laughs) either be... We've uh, had people go in a
1: lot of different directions.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it would have to either be one of the fundamental books uh, uh, behind the Land Institute, like Becoming Native to This Place, uh, or maybe it would be a, a People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, kind of before, one of those yeah. Fundamental, yeah, it's so fundamental works. So, yeah, so, yeah. Awesome, Beautiful.
1: awesome. Yeah, we, we've put together, uh, we, we've asked most of our guests this question. Uh, we put together actually an Amazon list called Trump's Book Club, uh, where, where folks can go on and literally uh, click, order it, and gets sent right to the White House. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Um, whether they read them or not, we're just trying to send a message. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> Fred, this has been fantastic. Uh, wh- where can our listeners follow you and the Land Institute online?
2: Yeah, so uh, so Twitter at uh, Nature As Measure uh, is uh, is kind of describes our paradigm. uh, uh dot uh, is the website. Uh, they can follow us in the real world uh, this fall when we have our annual Prairie Festival gathering here in Salina, Kansas, uh, September 28th through 30th. Uh, this is uh, something that the, the New York Times once wrote about, uh, described it as a, an intellectual hootenanny on the prairie. right? So was, there's <laughs> well, a mix of scientific world. talks, uh, kind of rousing activist talks, uh, barn dances, uh, field plot tours, prairie walks, uh, music, all that kind of stuff. So details on that website. Um, so people should should come on out for that.
0: I can only assume you guys you'll should. be serving you ride that motorcycle up. Yeah, it's business expense. I'm going to have it. to bring up my motorcycle again. Oh, God. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Fred. All right. Um, Thanks, Yeah, guys. we
1: really appreciate your time and all that you're doing out there.
0: Thanks. Take care. Take it easy. Thank you, Fred. Bye. Thanks.
1: Thanks to our incredible guest today, And thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at ImportantNotImportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species.
0: And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at ImportantNotImp. just so weird.
1: most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great
0: day. Thanks, guys.